I am really honored and really privileged to be sharing this morning here at Reflection, and I'm going to confess I am more nervous than I probably should be or expected to be, uh, and it's not because I feel like this is a community that will judge me or that will be unkind, because this community has been so gracious and welcoming to me. I think that's actually why I'm kind of nervous, is I felt like coming this morning was a special occasion, and I wanted to have um, a special gift. I wanted to honor the um, blessing that you guys have been to me and um, the welcoming that you've given me. And we've had a, a really impactful summer. I know that this series has really ministered to me a lot, and so I feel like coming at the end of that series uh, brought its own uh, feeling for me, like I really wanted to bring something special. So yesterday morning I got a text from a friend encouraging me, and it was from um, Ephesians 3, 7, and 10, and it was from the message translation. And whenever I'm anxious or feeling a little nervous, I like either the Living Translation or the Message Translation because it's just really vibrant. It speaks to you and it just goes to your heart. And the message was, this is my life's work, helping people understand and respond to the message. It came as a sheer gift to me, a real surprise, God handling all the details. When it came to presenting the message to people who had no background in God's way, I was the least qualified of any available Christians. God saw to it that I was equipped, but you can be sure that it had nothing to do with my natural abilities. And so here I am preaching and writing about things that are way over my head, the inexhaustible riches and generosity of Christ. My task is to bring out in the open and make plain what God, who created all of this in the first place, has been doing in secret and behind the scenes all along. Through followers of Jesus like yourselves gathered in churches this and non-churches, this extraordinary plan of God is becoming known and talked about even among the angels. So it's in that spirit that I come this morning, and I'm, I'm just thankful for the opportunity. Philippians 4, 4 through 9 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So this summer we've been studying the physiology that connects to the psychology that creates the mental and emotional and behavioral patterns that lead us in the wrong direction. Chuck has been educating us, connecting the, um, the science with the spiritual. And we've been considering the prospect of rewriting our owner's manual, um, our operating manual for our brain, and what that would look like. And it's been, for me, very impactful uh, to consider how our personal history has been imprint, imprinted on our brains and on ner nervous systems. My nervous system is kind of going a lot, so understanding how, I'm how all of those things have imprinted a path. And these are the ones that frequently make us feel stuck, or like we're heading in the wrong direction. The ones that lead us away from the God of peace and the peace of God. 
They lead us to anxiety, to depression, to frustration, discouragement, conflict, anger, and a host of other harmful and hurtful destinations. But fortunately, we have not been studying this just so we'll know, like, how did we get here? That's great. Great. Glad to know we got there, right? We've been studying this not just to be aware of the places we don't want to be, but to empower us to make other choices, to turn and to change, to understand that simply because we have been heading in a particular direction does not mean that we are stuck heading in that direction. That we have all that we've been learning has been to draw us towards repentance, towards changing our direction. And repentance is changing a direction. It's more than just um, letting go of behaviors. It's not just repenting from a traditionally accepted list of sins. It is a change, but it's more than a change. It's a change in a specific direction. It's an intentional change, and it doesn't occur automatically or instinctively. It isn't the simple exchange of one behavior for another, one attitude for another. It's not one way of doing it or the other. Repentance is a recognition that we've been going one way and we want to go the other way. We want to go towards God, the God of peace, and towards the peace of God. So we want to leave behind the patterns that have gotten us stuck, that have caused these damage. Romans 2 tells us that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So we are not led to repentance out of condemnation or out of punishment. But that doesn't make it any easier. Repentance causes us to forge an unfamiliar course, and it can feel uncomfortable. It can challenge us. The change of repentance is not easy. We don't have to make these changes on our own, in our own power. In John chapter 14, verses 26 and 27, Jesus tells us that the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. So we have help. We have a teacher to help us turn our fear and turn from our troubled hearts. But it is a learning process, and we will need to be reminded, and that's okay. The Holy Spirit will teach us, will remind us, and we will develop new habits, new patterns. And it's not a failure. It's a part of the process to need to be reminded, to need to practice, and to learn, and to grow. Is it worth it? If we know that making changes is going to be hard, that heading in a new direction will be hard and uncomfortable? Is it worth it? Why would we do it? <laughs> Sometimes that's a big question, right? What, what we're comfortable with is, is seems like it's working in one way or the other, and we're not sure about the other direction. But we do it because we recognize that we're not getting where we want to be. Maybe we're stuck in circles. We're not getting real progress. Maybe we're causing damage to our relationships. We're creating conflict internally and externally. So even though those old patterns are comfortable and natural, and we follow them instinctively, at our core, we know that they're not getting us where we want to be. They're not bringing us to healing, and we are all wounded. We have all been hurt. Our stories are different. None of us are the same, but we all need healing. 
In fact, many of the paths that we formed, we formed because we were hurt and we were running away from what we thought would hurt us. We were trying to protect ourselves. We were doing something self-protective, but those paths took us in the wrong direction. So whether the motives or circumstances that led us there, whatever they were, we don't have to stay on that path and we're not committed. So the challenge is to find new strategies, to resist returning to the old patterns and to find the tools we need to forge those new patterns and those new paths. And we find these strategies in Philippians 4. But many of us have heard this passage before so many times that we miss the practical strategies that it offers, the practical tools. Several years ago, I went through training to be a certified anger management specialist. And I was so excited when I got deep into it and I would come home and I would just be just so full of excitement because I discovered that the tools, although they had psychology labels and they had a lot of terminology, they were based in these principles. The principles that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi are the principles of emotional management. They are the principles that we can hold on to. And it makes me feel better to know that we're not the only ones in this process. That Paul had to teach this church the same principle. Does it make anybody else feel better to know that we're not alone? <laughs> yeah. That as uncomfortable as it is, we do this in community and we grow together. I'm comforted when as a community, as followers of Christ, we discover that we all are in this process of needing repentance and that we all have a goal that we can set forward to move towards the peace of God and the God of peace. The Living Bible, paraphrases, trans, uh, the Living Bible paraphrased translates Philippians 4.8 this way. Fix your thoughts on what is true and good and right. Think about these things that are pure and lovely. Dwell on the fine, good things in others. Think about all you can praise God for and be glad about it. So our thoughts trigger our emotions, which form our moods. And in our current culture, in our current society, we hear a lot of information that forms our thoughts. And we hear a lot of bad news. Bad news sells. And it settles. And it spreads. And it sinks in. And we can e easily develop those patterns of negativity based on the bad news. We are surrounded by crisis and conflict, by troubles. And as we develop these patterns of thinking negatively, we get stuck in the problems and the worst case scenarios, what is wrong and what might go wrong and what has gone wrong in the past. And we dwell on that. And these negative thoughts breed fear and worry and anxiety, depression, anger, frustration, overwhelmingness. It's a cycle that spins and we get caught in its loop. And it's a natural cycle. You can see it in our culture and in our society. So if we view verse 8 as a strategy to break the cycle, we can see the signposts for a new path in front of us. We are encouraged to think on the things that are noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. The message translation says that we'll do our best by filling our minds with these things. And I'm not suggesting that we live in denial, okay, that we stick our heads in the sand over the evil in the world, or that we try to be Pollyannas and pre pretend that everything is good and fine and there's no problems. What I am suggesting is that we intentionally also spend time thinking on the good, 
that we think about the praiseworthy things, especially when we notice that anxiety, anger, depression, and other distressing emotions have settled in. And we can only do this through intentionality. We seek out the positive and we go and we look for them. We capture them, write them down, keep them close to us so that we can return to them intentionally. We include them in our meditation. We think about them deeply. So that, this can be a photo of nature that reminds you of God's creativity and of beauty. It may be a story of somebody doing something heroic that reminds you of the admirable. Or remembering and writing so you can revisit the kindness that somebody has given you and shown you. These things we hold on to, we record. And as we sense the negative input dragging us down and a, an emotional path that's not going where we want to, we can return and use these signposts, the positive things, remembering all truly good things come from the Lord. And this brings us peace. It reminds us that God is good. If there are times of day where you seem to feel like it's heavy and dark and your thoughts go there, and your memories return to disappointments or failures or rejections, if there's times where you can sense repetitively that you just instinctively go there, maybe it's the evening or the morning, um, I would suggest that there's some practices, some practical practices you can do. One of the things I do is I take a notebook or a, a journal or a pad of paper and I'll write across the top a title a list I'm going to create. I don't fill out the list. I have the paper. It's blank except for the title. And I put it in, in those spaces and those places where I know that I'm going to uh, be more likely to be in a negative spot. And I title those things different things. So maybe one day it's um, the beautiful and amazing things in God's creation or the things I'm thankful for or the names of God or the qualities of God. And I make these lists, just the title, and I have them there. So if it's in the morning when I tend to wake up already feeling a heaviness, I put it by my bed or the coffee pot or the cereal box so that I can take five minutes and fill out the list. If it's in the evening, wherever I'm sitting or what I do ritually, I have it with me. If the purgatory of what-ifs and anxieties come in a doctor's office waiting room or in other places where you've got that time for your mind to go crazy, you can put it on your phone, on your tablet. It's not a blank piece of paper because that usually just makes you make a grocery list, right, or to-do list. You have it prepared and ready and practical so that you are ready to write the positive list out. And it's amazing how quickly that can shift your mind as that practice becomes your natural new path. When you've got those times, when you've got those few minutes, your brain begins to think about the lovely things, the right things. And you're resetting your triggers. It re does require being aware. And as we talked about last week, being aware means paying attention. What are we experiencing physically, mentally, emotionally? When we listen to music, do we notice ourselves feeling sad or angry? When we watch the news, do we cleanse our jaw or tense our shoulders? When we engage in a particular activity, are we drained or empty afterwards? So we evaluate this and we bring our awareness looking for patterns where we may need to change our behaviors and our thinking pro 
our thinking process intentionally. We come to the here and now, learning to recognize that we are not where we want to be, that we can stop and turn in a different direction, and that we can ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Also, we build new positive experiences, learning to savor them. We let them sink in and we marinate them. So they crowd out the memory system of the limbic system. So they're not erasing the negative stuff, but they're taking up a larger percentage of the space. And um, as we're doing this, we have to interrupt the tyranny of busyness, the things that are always coming at us, and stop intentionally. What are the things we enjoy, the little things that add up? and they add up internally in our minds and in our memories. We can help capture these memories by increasing our sensory experience of them. Chuck has been talking about this. We breathe in, stop, smell the ocean air or the mountain air, the pine trees or the lilacs or the roses. We stop and we feel the sun on our face or the raindrops or the wind. We catalog in our mind the chill of the evening as we're stargazing, we take the time for the little things and we essentially write them on our brains, on our memories. We pay attention to them. You can take a photo. Most of us take photos of those sorts of things, of the sunset, the rainbow. Uh, but you then put it someplace where you're going to remember it, you're going to return to it. Watch the children playing the puppy playing, the squirrel running around being busy. Pay attention. As we pay attention to our senses, the positive feelings from the smell, touch, sight, and sound help our memories um, cement those, and they help build new triggers. The moment of calm, the laughter of joy, the wonder of beauty, they are building new paths and pathways. I encourage you to consider writing about those experiences shortly after they happen. Writing a couple of paragraphs or a couple of sentences about the beauty or joy or wonder of the things you have seen and experienced. If you don't like to write sentences or paragraphs, make a list real quick. What are the things that really set in your heart and your mind that made you smile, that you enjoyed? When you do that, what you're doing is you're consolidating those memories. You're storing them securely. If you tell somebody about them, you're reinforcing the memory again. By speaking them out loud, they become more a part of your memory process. And then we build positive connections to Scripture. Ask the Holy Spirit if there's a message from Scripture for you in that experience. As you reflect on your positive experiences, does it remind you of a Scripture? And it doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to be something for everybody else. You can eat a great piece of pie and then the verse tastes and see that the Lord is good. Right? Those aren't necessarily relevant, but as they're connecting to you, you write it down. If you have just really enjoyed the, a new moon or a, a full moon, you might remember the, the verse, praise him sun and moon, praise him all you, sun, all you shining stars. Write that down. Record that. Connect that to the positive, and you begin to imprint that picture on your mind. If you took a picture, print it out. If you drew a sketch, put it down and write that verse down with it. Write the list. Connect those things together, and then put it somewhere where it will remind you, where you will have access to it. It took a while for most of our old patterns 
to be formed. It can take a while for new patterns to be formed. It isn't a magic wand. We make a plan and we intentionally practice the plan. Then we rinse and we repeat. And it's okay that it requires repetition. It's okay that it doesn't feel natural right away. Eventually it becomes natural, normal, even comfortable. We keep returning to listen to the Holy Spirit. It's not a one-time lesson, and we are not failing because we need reminders. One of the most unnatural and yet important things we can do is we can challenge the lies. We can challenge the negative thoughts that we believe and hear. Just because we think something doesn't mean it's true. Particularly, the things that we begin to believe over time about how God feels about us, about our worth, our value, what we can contribute, our abilities. It is so easy to let the patterns of your mind go to the places like, God is angry with me, or disappointed in me, or it's too late for me to change, God could never use me, I am too much, or I am not enough. We can challenge those lies. We can go to scripture and look for the truth and then challenge them. We can recognize that all kinds of things have been put into our brain that may or may not be true. We do not have to accept them just because we've repeated them. And we also don't have to feel condemned or judge ourselves because we believed them at one point. If maybe in your childhood or in another stage of your adulthood, you felt like a failure all the time, you began to believe that you were a failure, you can challenge that. You can use the scripture to apply the truth and call it a lie without condemning yourself to give yourself strength and to renew your mind. We are to think on the things that are true, the things that are right, the things that are lovely. And we can watch what input we allow in. Sometimes there are repetitive, negative voices in our head. We hear them so much, we begin to think that they came from us, that they're internal. And really, they're external. And we can watch and limit how much we allow those voices to speak into our lives. We can choose positive voices. We can choose people who encourage us, who uplift us. We can choose to seek out those messages. When worry is the issue that we want to turn, with, turn from, when it is anxiety that crowds out joy, we can take those things to prayer. This passage in Philippians tells us that we can allow our worries to shape our prayers. It's not that having a worry or anxiety isn't going to happen. There's going to things that they're going to concern us, right? If you're not worrying about something or aware of something, you may not be really facing the reality of the situation. But what it's doing is saying we're not going to marinate in it. We're not going to soak in that worry. When you sense that worry, when you sense that concern, you use that to shape your prayers, to take it to the Lord. It's easier said than done. It does require intentionality. But when we marinate in God's faithfulness and we bring our prayers to him in his faithfulness, his goodness, we can see his help and his presence in it. So the conflicts in our lives are not limited to internal experiences. Our relationships, even our most important and dear to us, are at risk of conflict. When individuals are in distress, it is very easy for relationships to be in distress. 
In Romans 12:18, we are encouraged to live in peace with others as much as it is in our power to do so. Sometimes it's not in our power. We're just not in control. We cannot live in peace with somebody else because they don't want to live in peace with us. But frequently there are practical things that we can do to increase our odds, to improve the chance of bringing peace to a conflict. And that's what we want to do, all that we can do. One of the most valuable practices we can engage in is to prioritize the relationship over the issue at conflict. Sometimes the issue is very, very important. It puts another relationship at risk. There's a life and death situation. And, and the issue becomes more important. But usually, if we really evaluate, we would rather have the relationship than we would to win. Winning the issue does not seem as important when we realize that we could lose somebody in our lives or some relationship that's very important. And since we cannot always win and have the relationship, we may need to make a conscious choice. I love win-win situations. So Jim mentioned I'm a mediator. I love win-win situations. When we can find a solution that works for everybody, I love it. It's always my goal. But sometimes the real win is in the forfeit. It's in deciding what the priority is and letting something go to hold on to the more valuable. So we can get in a winning, a need-to-be-right, want-it-our-way mindset. And when mediating a family dispute, sometimes I will ask the parties separately. I'll pull them apart, and I'll say, if you win this issue, if you get what you want, but you lose the relationship, will you feel like that's the result you're satisfied with? It's an important thing to consider, and it brings perspective. It's easy to let the little things get big fast. So we can separate the issue from the individual and decide that a relationship is more important than the issue, and we can return to the practices from Philippians 4, taking the time to list out the things that are good about the person that we appreciate and value, and intentionally reminding ourselves of their value in our lives. We break the mental cycle of always thinking about the problem, what's bothering us, and we turn towards the person. And as we do, we ask the Lord for his peace, and we ask that he will guard our hearts and minds from returning to the old pattern. And then there is unity without uniformity. It is possible to have a relationship without agreement. It is possible, even on important issues, that we can have a relationship with people who disagree with us on all kinds of things, and we don't have to live in conflict. We can give each other permission to come to different conclusions without the continual need for us to try to change their mind or convince them of our side. We can choose to respect differences without succumbing to the temptation to demean them. We can learn from each other through respectful dialogue or make, make a conscious decision not to bring up topics and issues that will elevate hot button or sensitive subjects. And it isn't easy to do. It's a discipline. Because most of us are passionate about the conclusions we come to and the positions we take. We want other people to agree with us, to see what we consider important, and to come to the same conclusions. But we can offer the grace and space, the honor and respect for individuals to come to different conclusions. And this may be a particular useful strategy during the current political cycle. 
But it's not just about politics. But we can be in, friend, in relationship with friends and family, people who vote different than us, who, who support different football teams than us, who have all kinds of different values and perspectives on different things. When we are willing to recognize that many issues, like the ones that Jim was talking about today, are complex and nuanced, and that we each bring our own background and experience as we form our positions, we can grow to respect that other individuals may not agree with us. And that doesn't make them all wrong and us all right. It doesn't mean they are ignorant or stupid or stand of evidence of our superior intellect or good judgment. When we release the requirement for uniformity within our relationships, we find a new strength, a richness in the diversity, and often the tensions of the conflict are lessened. In choosing to take the time to think on things that are good of good report, fixing our thoughts on what is true and good in others, we are making a choice not to dwell on the negative and not on the things we disapprove of in the lives of our loved ones. It's not that we are not aware or we're in denial, but we're not allowing those things to dominate our thoughts about the people we care about. In fact, we can release our right to approval and disapproval to help restore our relationships. We form our approval and our disapproval around what makes us comfortable, what matches our taste, what we are accustomed to or would like to become accustomed to, and then we impose that on other people. We want them to dress in a certain way, behave in a certain way, fit into our expectations in a certain way so that we are not uncomfortable. It becomes a way to control others to relieve our own distress. We are not forced to change how we interact with the world around us or to question our views or expectations if other people behave in a way that matches with our approval. When people challenge the norms, or what we wish were the norms, psychologically we can feel like it's challenging how we fit in the world, how we interpret the world, and it's very uncomfortable. And so, by imposing our disapproval on the behaviors of others, it's our way of expressing our discomfort at the pace of change and growth around us. Sometimes we disapprove because the ones around us are not changing with society like we think they should. Sometimes we disapprove because we don't want to change and we're not ready to change. And sometimes we attach a moral value to a taste or cultural difference. We disapprove and say that it's wrong when in reality it's just unfamiliar or it's different for us. Imposing our views of approval on others is demeaning to them. It's patronizing. It says loudly and clearly that we don't trust their judgment or ability to form their own opinions of what is appropriate. It says we don't trust them to listen to the Holy Spirit or to read the word and learn healthy and appropriate boundaries for behavior. And frequently it backfires, causing people to truly rebel and even more extreme expressions of independence from our influence. So to build healthy, respectful relationships, we can let go of the power of our approval over others. We can intentionally choose to follow the instructions of Philippians 4, dwelling on fine, good things in others, turning our thoughts away from those behaviors we don't like, spending time looking for and acknowledging the good. It is not us compromising our own values or morals or beliefs to acknowledge that we are not responsible for or accountable to the choice, 
for the choices or decisions of others. We can trust other people to make choices in their lives without thrusting our own discomfort or distress on them. I'm not suggesting that we throw away all the laws and rules or dress codes or societal norms. But in our personal relationships, if we can let go of the power of our approval and disapproval, if we can love people enough to let them make choices and decisions that we are not comfortable with, we can find a lot of healing. So by deciding not to hoist our approval or disapproval on others, it may not change their behavior. It may not change our comfort level regarding their behavior. But it will change our relationship. It can help us to have compassion. And it can help us to seek the better. None of these strategies are easy to practice. They all require change. And when we are in distress, when we are discouraged or overwhelmed or in conflict, it can feel like the hardest time to make change. We're already feeling drained and weak, and finding the momentum to change is the hardest in that window. I think that's the beauty of a community of faith, especially one like this. Together we practice meditation. We practice inviting the Lord in, quietly listening, and waiting on him. What feels uncomfortable and awkward at first slowly becomes comfortable, even natural. And in our practices, we encourage each other, support each other, and we know that we are not alone. It is okay to ask for help. In the process of rewriting our owner's manual for our brain, our operating manual, we may discover that we need help. We may find trauma or patterns that we can't break our own, and if that's okay. It's not a failure to ask help from a counselor, from a therapist, a mediator, a prayer partner, other source. It's okay. It's not a pick up yourself by your bootstraps kind of a process. This is a community growing in love, teaching one another the peace of God, and together growing in our relationship with the God of peace. This is us sharing the inexhaustible riches and generosity of Christ with each other. On that note, I have been asked to share just a tiny bit about what I've been doing in the last 14 months since um, you guys were kind and, and honoring enough to ordain me. So in the last year, I have um, not been, it's not been what I expected at all um, for ministry. I've spent a lot of time grieving with people. I've spent a lot of time with hurting people. I spent a lot of time with people in, in a great amount of stress and distress. And one of the things that I've noticed for a long time is that People are buried under a horde of hurts. There are a lot of things that hurt us. Life piles up. And so a few months ago, I started writing and um, kept writing, and I wrote a book. And it is The Horde of Hurts. It's called Freeing Space. And it's on clearing our horde of hurts uh, to make space for joy. I believe that we pray for joy, we ask for joy, peace, hope, and love. The Lord sends it, and frequently we can't experience joy, peace, and love because they need room, right? And we've hoarded out our space with hurts. So that's really what I've been working a lot on this year is um, bringing emotional and spiritual healing 
And I, I've written this book. I've shared it with a few people here and a few people. Um, I, I printed an early reader's version. I have no idea if it will be published or what will happen with that. I, I really have no direction. I would appreciate anybody who would be welcome to pray with me in that. Um, but I've been able to teach on it a little bit. And in November, I'm going to have a retreat, my first small retreat in Fallbrook and for women on emotional and spiritual healing and facing the horde of hurts to look for these pr practical strategies to help us find and experience more joy moving towards the peace of God and the God of peace. And I'm going to cover some of the strategies I've talked about today and uh, really together in a confidential, intimate community. That's uh, my goal. So if there are any women here who are interested, I did bring a little slip of paper with my email and I can send you a flyer um, and I wanted to invite you to that. Um, I'm hopeful and prayer prayerful that I'll be able to do this um, continuing. It looks like maybe that's the direction that the Lord is sending me in ministry and um, I'm so grateful for the covering that this church non-church spiritual community <laughs> has offered me in that. Someone asked me during my ordination process why I thought ordination mattered, and I said it's because sometimes I go into places where they're looking for that official recognition, um, and I didn't really know what that was going to look like, but this year I've been in hospitals and asked to prove, and I, I actually had a picture on my phone from the ordination ceremony. Um, I don't have like a card or anything, but I could prove that I was ordained, um, and it allowed me to minister in places that I wouldn't have been able to. And I respect that mental health facilities and hospitals need to protect their vulnerable populations, so they needed that official recognition, and so your graciousness um, and honoring and helping me with that um, has allowed me to open the door for that. So I'm going to ask that you would stand with me. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face radiate with joy because of you. May he be gracious to you, show you his favor, and give you his peace. Amen. <laughs>